Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Stanley Plotkin. Dr. Plotkin, can you uh, introduce yourself? I'm Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. Where um, where'd you grow up? Kind of get a little bit about in the you. Bronx. What? Uh, um, sorry, go ahead. And um, I'm an alumnus of the Bronx High School of Science. What? Um, for for people who don't know, you you've had a pretty kind of put it simply, brilliant career. Um, Can you tell people what your specialty was? Well, um, I started out um, in uh, uh, epidemiology, uh, then um, moved to virology, uh, and then uh, started developing vaccines. And... um, I've done pediatric infectious diseases. I was chairman of uh, that specialty at Philadelphia Children's Hospital. Uh, And uh, I've spent most of my research career uh, developing vaccines or testing vaccines. I definitely want to dive into the the process for testing testing vaccines and coming uh, coming up with them. People who don't know, you're partially responsible or, or wholly responsible, and you can clarify that for the MMR vaccine, or at least the rubella aspect of it, uh, the rabies vaccine, rotavirus, and I might butcher this, the, the cytomegalovirus. Um, mm-hmm. Before we get in too much into, into your field, what fields of science did you have to study to kind of become as knowledgeable as you are on vaccines and such? Well, as I said, pediatric infectious diseases on the uh, clinical side and virology on the laboratory side Um, and and also uh, epidemiology because vaccines have to be used in line with the epidemiology of particular disease. So those are the three areas that are uh, important. What does, what was the, I guess the motivating factor for you to get into that field of study and to do the work that you've done? Well, actually, uh, because of uh, two books that I read when I was 15, uh, one um, uh, is um, the novel uh, Arrowsmith uh, by Sinclair Lewis and the other is a biography called Microbe Hunters by Paul de Cruyff. Uh, and um, that was, they were enough to decide uh, my future career. So there's, there's a lot to unpack about vaccines, especially given what's taken place over the last year or so. Um, what can you say to kind of demystify vaccines? Well, so 
that's a complicated question. Um, the point of a vaccine is to give you the immunity, immunity that a natural infection would give you, but without causing the disease, obviously. And um, there are many ways of developing a vaccine, uh, practically all of which, all, all the ways of which uh, have been used in uh, this last year to develop a vaccine uh, against the disease called COVID-19. Um, but it, it, it means vaccinology is a subject that covers microbiology, it covers immunology, and it covers epidemiology. All of those uh, factors are important in uh, determining why a vaccine is needed, uh, what, uh, what uh, strategies can be used to develop a vaccine, and how do you deploy a vaccine. It's no use developing a vaccine unless you are able to use it uh, in um, populations that are susceptible to the particular disease. So uh, in a way, it's a subject that is very broad um, because it involves uh, so much <laughs> of, of science, of biology. Right. Before I go any further, what are some of the things that you've seen over the last year or throughout your career that, I, I guess, the bigger myths that bother you the most about vaccines and, and viruses and such? The biggest myths, did you yeah. say? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's hard to answer because there are so many myths. Um and uh, it derives from the fact that unlike most of medicine, where you are uh, uh, treating s someone who already has a disease, in the case of vaccines, you are trying to prevent the disease from occurring. So you're basically vaccinating uh, healthy people. And uh, that complicates things because, of course, if people are healthy, they may not um, be worried about a particular disease. So we, we see um, what's called, for lack of a better term, a hesitance, hesitancy mm -hmm. about being vaccinated, um, which uh, largely is... Uh, based on skepticism that that you, that is the individual, are going to acquire the disease. Um, so uh, people um, sometimes, in a way, prefer the disease or the risk of the disease for the risk of the vaccine. Got it. I think that's, that's something I think we've seen pretty blatantly over the last year. I have a, a number of questions I want to ask specifically about COVID, but before we, we jump into that, um, a little bit more about your career. 
What improvements have you seen in the process of vaccines from their inception to administration to the general public? Well, you know, first of all, um, the history of vaccines goes back to the late 18th century. So it's not something that happened uh, yesterday. Right. And um, it, it, it uh, took off, so to speak, in the late 19th century. Uh, and, uh, and at the end of the 20th century. Uh, and the reason why it uh, took off at the end of the 20th century uh, was basically the advances in, um, in biology, both virology and bacteriology, which, uh, pr- which provided basic knowledge that enabled vaccines to develop. And so um, from about 1960 to the present, numerous, probably about 30 or 40 vaccines uh, have, been, have been developed uh, and um, based on a, a, a need that is, um, well, I suppose an obvious example is uh, Ebola, which was a tropical disease that um, caused deaths here and there, but uh, wasn't very important uh, until uh, recently, as you know, I guess about five years ago. Um, and that launched an effort to develop uh, vaccines against Ebola, which were developed and which are, are quite powerful and uh, have been deployed wherever outbreaks uh, occur. So the point I'm making is that um, a v- vaccine is developed because of the epidemiology that says this is a... Uh, uh, a disease that's going to happen often, and we need to prevent it. So um, uh, diseases like measles and, and rubella uh, were obviously damaging, and so it became obvious that vaccines needed to be developed. And as, as I just said, it so happened after the Second World War that the knowledge that gave us the capability of developing those vaccines became available to to scientists. Uh, and that has continued. The reason we have vaccines against COVID-19 is not because of the knowledge developed in the late 20th century. It's based on the knowledge that has been acquired in the early part of this century. So the advances of science have contributed to our ability uh, to, to make vaccines. I was going to wait to kind of jump into the COVID thing, but since you kind of brought it up, and it, I guess it's kind of more relevant at the moment, were you surprised to see the speed at which the vaccine was created? No, 
And the reason is that, you know, people uh, talk about uh, how uh, vaccines were developed in less than a year. But what they don't realize is that research on coronaviruses and research on uh, strategies like messenger RNA started late in the last century. In other words, research over 20 years has enabled us to, uh, to make a vaccine within a year. But without that basic knowledge, it would, have not, it would not have been possible. So um, one has to understand that science is a cumulative endeavor, that people start with very basic stuff uh, about things that uh, don't interest many people, but interest scientists, particular scientists, enough to, to go into their laboratories and start trying to learn as much as possible, in this case, about coronaviruses. And so when, um, when it became obvious um, at the beginning of 2020 that this was uh, an epidemic disease, the technologies to make vaccines were readily available. And um, uh, if I may say something that's uh, faintly shocking, uh, this has been a great year for the 2020, was a great year for vaccinology. I mean, putting aside the, the, the deaths, the disease, the economic disaster and all that, um, vaccines have um, come into their own in the sense that uh, that multiple strategies have been used to develop vaccines against COVID-19. And we're, we're just now trying to figure out which are the best ones and how to use them. Thank you for kind of making me feel that I was right, because I, I agree with that. I, I was not surprised in the least to see how quickly they were able to, to kind of get something out. And in the conversations I've had, it kind of stemmed on how far science has come in the last you know, 30, 40 years. The amount of information, the speed at which they're able to do things, the, the advances in technology, I think all those contributed to being able to more expeditiously get a vaccine out than what would have been done in, say, you know, the 60s and 70s. Well, there are at least two other aspects that are worth mentioning. One is the change in the vaccine industry. Uh, originally, vaccines were developed in public, public health institutes and um, more or less on a shoestring. Um, but as vaccinology developed and the need to vaccinate large populations became clear, uh, it, it shifted to a commercial development. Now, this is something, of course, that is faintly controversial. That is that uh, people making money from vaccines. 
But the fact of the matter is that if you want the latest technology and you want uh, vaccines that are produced safely and effectively, you need to have large outfits that know what they're doing. Right. And, of course, uh, that means they, they need a financial return. And the, the good thing that's happened is that the vaccine industry is now not only in Europe and North America, that you now have gigantic industries, vaccine manufacturers, in places like India, Brazil, China, um, and a few other places, uh, so that the capability for vaccinating eight, 8 billion people is now feasible, where it, it, it wouldn't have been uh, some, some years ago. So there's there's that aspect that's very important. And then another uh, aspect is that um, more or less, I'm trying to remember the year, but I guess in the 1970s, more or less, it was recognized that poor countries were not capable of vaccinating their populations. So um, uh, an organization called Gavi was set up to financially provide vaccines to poor countries at very low low prices. Uh, But that didn't um, solve the problem of why would a company make a vaccine to be used in Nigeria uh, or the Congo uh, when the possibility of profit uh, would would be unlikely? So um, in 2015, um, I wrote an article with a couple of other people uh, to propose that a new organization be developed that would essentially develop vaccines for lower middle-income countries. And that organization uh, came to fruition a couple of years later and is now um, called CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation. And their job is to develop vaccines for diseases that have no commercial interest. Now, they are actually working on COVID-19, which does have commercial interest, but they've also been developing vaccines against diseases like like Zika, chikungunya, things that, um, that are of great interest to the tropics, but not necessarily uh, for in, in temperate areas. So I, I just want to make those points that we are in a much better position now than we would have been 30 years ago. Right. I think that what some people fail to see you know, when we talk about medicines and, and the cost of medicines, the companies that come up with these 
remedies are, you know, they're equating the cost to the research and development. It's, it's the return of investment for future research and development for future medications and things. So I understand the need for, for driving revenue so they can further do, you know, more effective and, and expansive research on varying subjects and, and diseases and such. But I think what CEPI is doing is, is fantastic and clearly, you know, the altruistic aspect of it is, is definitely needs to be noted. Um, since we're kind of talking about COVID, what are your thoughts on the rollout for the vaccine, you know, globally for, you know, for the U.S.? Well, uh, I mean, no one can say that everything went smoothly. <laughs> Obviously, um, there have been a lot of hiccups uh, and uh, promises that, that couldn't be kept. Uh, so it, it's a mixed bag. Right. Um, certainly, uh, there are many countries that need vaccine, the vaccines that aren't getting them. But as I pointed out a moment ago, places like India are no longer uh, uh, backwards. So they are making vaccines and vaccinating uh, their people. Well, of course, when trying to vaccinate a billion people is not, not easy. <laughs> and um, similar, similarly with the uh, Chinese, uh, so uh, things are, are, are better in, in that regard. But, of course, then they're, they're not perfect. Right. And um, uh, vaccinating 8 billion people is not going to be easy. And it does mean that people in the Congo are going to be at the end of the line in terms of, of, of getting vaccine. But at least... Ultimately, uh, we're, I think, confident that, that uh, the, there will eventually be uh, enough vaccine. But, but getting back to, to your, your question, uh, I think that there was some um, uh, unjustified optimism about uh, getting large quantities of vaccines uh, out there because, you know, it's it's not like uh, you know, going into the kitchen and cook, cooking dinner. It, it, it involves processes that are inherently uh, slow. And even if they were speeded up, uh, still making, uh, let's say, 300 or in most cases, 600 million doses for the U.S. is still not something that we've been able to do. Uh, and, of course, that's why we have different priorities uh, for uh, who gets, uh, who gets the, the, the vaccine. But on the other hand, um, one can say that all hands were on deck, are on deck, mm -hmm. And uh, eventually there will be enough. What kind of uh, weight or insight or control, and I apologize if, I, if none of those three words match, but what, 
what kind of influence does the CDC really have on, I guess, the information that scientists get to work with for creating the vaccines? Well, you know, I um, uh, worked at CDC, or, or rather I was a CDC officer for three years, many years ago. So I have a lot of affection for C- CDC. Uh, but what happened, uh, at least in, in my view, was that they were sort of uh, displaced and not led very well uh, during the initial parts of the epidemic. And they're just, you know, playing catch up uh, at, at the moment. But they are um, doing as well as they can. I, I, I have to remind you that we don't have a single government. We have 50 different governments. Right. So each, each state can do what it wants, more or less. And so you see that Texas is going one way and Pennsylvania is going another way. Um, so... Uh, CDC is doing as much as it can, establishing uh, guidelines and and uh, issuing advice. Um, but um, I, I must say that the federal government was not um, as forceful as it 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 might have been at the beginning. Uh, Tony Fauci um, uh, tried to um, to foster uh, scientifically valid steps, but in in a, in a way, it should have been CDC doing that uh, rather than than NIH. But be be that as it may, uh, Fauci was not able to uh, give directions when Trump was running the, running the show or ostensibly running the show. So um, I think there was a, a lot of um, uncertainties and um, miscommunications at, at the beginning and, and different communications, uh, different instructions. Uh, but, uh, but as I said a moment ago, I think CDC is in a much better position now than it was. So would it be fair to say that the CDC and, and any of the organizations that kind of typically take control in these situations was handcuffed by the politicization of the virus and the vaccine and all that? Yeah, I think so. Um, you, you kind of touched on it before um, you mentioned the, the messenger RNA. Can you, for people who are not aware, can you explain what the difference is between the quote-unquote typical vaccines and the mRNA-based vaccines? Well, so um, when, I was a bo- <laughs> when I was a boy, there were two ways to make vaccines. Uh, one was to... Uh, grow the organism, whether bacteria or virus, and to kill it 
and to use the killed organisms. And the other way was to grow the virus or bacteria in a way that would weaken them so that they didn't cause disease but would still uh, infect and induce an immune response. But with the development of molecular biology and genetic engineering, it became possible not to um, have to use the finished product, so to speak, but to go, um, uh, well, first of all, to break down things and to identify the particular parts of the organism that, that, that gives the important immune responses and to use those parts as the vaccine. Uh, and uh, then, um, and these things were happening in the, in the 90s and uh, early uh, 2000s. Uh, and, and then uh, it was realized that you could take bits of, uh, let's say, the business bits of organisms and stick them into other organisms and let those other organisms uh, present the proteins to the immune system. So that's why we have vaccines like Janssen and uh, AstraZeneca, which are using viruses to, um, uh, let's say, viruses that are harmless to uh, present parts of the COVID-19 virus uh, to the immune system. Uh, and then, um, again, starting in the, in the 90s, the idea um, came to researchers that why not use the, the, the genetic material from uh, virus or bacteria as a way of inducing immune responses. Now, as you probably know, typically an organism that has DNA uh, produces a copy in RNA, and then the RNA produces a, uh, a, a the RNA codes for amino acids, so proteins, and so that the RNA can make a protein and the protein can stimulate an immune response. So anyway, that gets a bit complicated perhaps, but, but the point is that today we are using the genetic code of organisms to uh, do what they do within the organism, that is to produce proteins and those proteins are what can immunize against the disease. So in the case of the uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, we have what's called messenger RNA. And why is it messenger RNA? The message is the proteins right. that, that, code, that are coded for by the RNA. And so when somebody gets an injection of the messenger RNA, his, uh, the messenger RNA 
expresses the proteins in his body or her body, and uh, therefore uh, the immune system in that person is exposed to those proteins and makes a, a response to those proteins. So that's a long explanation, <laughs> but um, th that's basically the point, that we are using genetic engineering to make vaccines now. Got it. Given the fact that over the last year we've seen a lot of what I deem to be unnecessary politicization of, you know, means to combat the virus and about the vaccine. I mean, anti-vax mentality has kind of been around for a handful of years. What would you say to people, I guess, to kind of battle back against some of the anti-vaxxing mentality? Well, I guess the only there are only two answers to that. One is... Um, <laughs> looking at the evidence rather than listening to people like Wakefield and Robert Kennedy, who are just spouting bull. <laughs> uh, uh, but that, that's, that's one part of it. There's a question of, of whom you believe. Right. Uh, but the, the, the other part is what I call uh, risk measurement. Um, and um, I published a paper recently, which was a very simple result of a very simple idea. Um, I don't know if everybody is aware, but there is a system in this country established quite a few years ago now uh, where if you can show that you have been damaged by a vaccine recommended by the government, the government will reimburse you. Um, so, that, in other words, that system rewards uh, what are real reactions to vaccines. And the point being that, that there's nothing in life that's absolutely harmless. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, so uh, one cannot den cannot deny that there are reactions to vaccines, but the question is, what what is their frequency? Right. And now we're we're not talking about sore arm or you know rash, and that, we're talking about serious reactions. So what I did simply was to look at uh, the most recent uh, 12 years of rewards that the government has made and also for those years how many doses of each vaccine were given to people in the U.S. And then I simply divided the number of doses by the number of reactions and it turned out that for uh, each of the vaccines, the, the rate was about within a fraction of one in a million. So that's the, that's the risk. Right. Now, if, if you understand risk, 
And so the question is, do I take a risk of one in a million or do I take the risk of the disease, which is, you know, except for polio, which is gone, uh, you know, the risk of the disease is a lot more than that. Right. And uh, that's what I uh, will say to people who are uh, afraid of taking vaccines. You know, if you if if you have any statistical sense at all, you would take the vaccine over the disease. I don't think that I was aware that the government was reimbursing people for, we'll call it damages from a vaccine. I mean, as you pointed out, vaccines do different things to different people. And I think, you know, using my wife and I as examples with the most recent vaccine, as you said, all I had was a sore arm for both of my shots. And after the second shot from my wife, she, and not just my wife, but a handful of people, I know, you know, they were out for about 24 hours with fevers and things like that. But, you know, it, it was a, a side effect. It was a, a known side effect. And then I think the question is, is for these awards that the government's given out, you know, what are they deeming to be a viable, you know, so it, it, damage? Yeah, I should specify that what the government rewards is serious reactions that result in a disability. They're, they're not rewarding a sore arm and right. that sort of thing. They're, they're rewarding people who, let's say, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a neurological reaction right. that has occurred to some influenza vaccines. That's the kind of thing that they re- reward but even, even that seems, and maybe it's just my perspective, but I think that, that just seems kind of ridiculous that you know, the government's doing what they think is in the best interest of, of people in general. So they're recommending these specific vaccines. Nobody can predict how that vaccine is going to react with your body. Everybody is different. I mean, that's why some people have certain allergies and other people don't. So I think it's just a, a little, I guess, I don't know, ridiculous <laughs> to, to reward people for, for doing what's in the best interest of, of the overall population. Well, I understand what you're saying, and that's uh, a, a viable attitude. But on the, on the other hand, it means that uh, people cannot say that they were ignored and that they, they suffered for nothing. So um, I, I, at the beginning, uh, many years ago, I was more or less of your opinion, but I've changed my view. I think the system works, and um, and you know keeps things rolling. So understandable, yeah. and and it's a good point. What are your thoughts on? I want to say recent, but it's really hasn't been too too recent. But the recent trend of you know, the anti science, anti intellectualism anti-vaccine people are trying to educate the people that are on the anti side of things what do you think as a either as a government or as as a people we can do to better combat the nonsense well that is a very difficult question (laughs) uh to answer and um there are lots of people better 
uh, what shall I say, uh, better able to answer that, although I have to say that none of them has an answer that is absolutely uh, workable. Um, you know, a lot of people are contrarians. Oh, uh, there's the old business of they go into a church and and they're uh, they're the, the church is crowded. They'll go to a church that is uncrowded because it's uncrowded. Right. Uh, and uh, so some people just like to be contrarians. Um, and the other thing is that uh, as as we have seen um, recently, uh, we, we see every day there are there's a substantial, proportion of people who love conspiracies. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, 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 it's serious. There, there are people who prefer to believe in malignant um, actions by other people. Uh, you know, I was just reading today an article about, um, uh, claiming that... Um, the uh, SARS-2 virus was um, invented in a Chinese laboratory. Now, from my point of view, that's an hypothesis. And then you ask yourself, what's the evidence? Uh, so what I'm saying is, okay, it's an idea. It could be right. But... Uh, you, you can't sort of insist on it, making it, uh, making uh, this idea out of whole cloth when you have no evidence for it. Right. So, but there are a lot of people who prefer to go with conspiracy theories, and uh, there's n nothing much you, uh, you you can do about that. So, I, I understand the psychology of people like Robert Kennedy, but that's, from my point of view, uh, that's his pathology, and right. nothing I can do about it. If you could wave the proverbial magic wand to, to kind of fix these things, what, what type of things would you like to see changed? Well, you know, uh, this may be simplistic, but uh, I think a big issue is education of children. That children need to understand the, the, the scientific method. I mean, they don't necessarily have to understand molecular biology, <laughs> but they, ha they have to understand how you look at evidence, how you assess whether something is true or false. And unfortunately, I don't think most um, children get get that. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of this that I uh, went to Bronx Science High School when I was a kid, and that was a very formative experience because it, it was a, a school where everybody assessed ideas scientifically. And I, I, I think uh, it was probably one of the most important 
things I've ever done is is to go through that kind of, of education, uh, which um, insisted that if I had an idea, I had to have evidence for the idea. I'm, I, I agree with that. I, I don't think that critical thinking is taught the way that it was, you know, even 25, 30 years ago. I think we've kind of transitioned into this educational system that's all about standardized tests and just moving people through. And I'm dying to get in touch with some more education-oriented people that I can have that discussion with. But, you know, the, the fact that people will look at evidence and just blindly say that, oh, that's not true because it it's not part of their particular echo chamber, I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have. What do you see are maybe some of the long-term effects, either good or bad, from the spread of like this type of misinformation? Well, I mean, people have to make decisions in life, in, including, for that matter, in a democracy, whom, whom to vote for. And ideally, they should be able to evaluate what people say for whether it's true or not, whether there's evidence for it. Um, uh, unfortunately, that's not that's often not not the case. But uh, I, I I do think I'm, maybe I'm exaggerating the ability of education, but I do think that education of children is really capital. Agreed. Are you retired, mostly retired? I mean, after your extensive... I've and... retired about four times. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've had such a extensive and incredible career, so are you at least enjoying your multiple retirements? <laughs> Well, uh, in point of fact, um, I am giving advice, I hope good advice, <laughs> to a lot of organizations. So I, uh, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, I no longer have a laboratory, so I cannot uh, do anything in, in that regard, but um, I can try to help people do what they want to do uh, and to move things forward. So um, I have not yet retired in any realistic sense. Um, but of course, uh, I realize that inevitably I will have to. If anybody wanted to kind of follow you up on anything, are you, where could they find more information on you and, and your writings? Well, <laughs> I mean, I know you've got go, a lot of published papers, but yeah, right. Well, so that's probably the best place. Uh, I've written a couple of autobiographical papers, actually. So if they go on PubMed, uh, they can find uh, the articles. I will make sure I put that, a link to that. And again, any any parting words? Huh? Parting words. <laughs> Uh, I think the Chinese curse about living in interesting times has come to pass. And um, this is going to change 
society. This this, this uh, is a civilization changing experience, and uh, as I say in one of the first slides I show in many lectures, the world has had epidemics ever since civilization started. This is not the, the first, it's not surprising, and it will happen in the future, and we have to prepare for it. We, we cannot just let it happen without preparation. Otherwise, if we do, uh, then um, uh, we, we will suffer. Uh, and, you know, just to make a, a specific point about that, um, as you may remember, we had a previous SARS virus in about 2005 or somewhere in the 2003, 2005. Right. Which, which there were, I think, about, well, several thousand cases. But fortunately, the disease was controlled because its biology is different than SARS-2. But my point is that we could have uh, developed vaccines against SARS-1 uh, if we had been smart in order to prepare for another coronavirus, which in fact is what happened. Right. So again, that's why uh, what I talked about, CEPI, et cetera, is now crucial. Well, thank you again very much for that and, and for your time. I appreciate okay. it. All right. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.